Hey, before we kick off the episode, I'd like to let you know that nothing Sam and I say during our series on investing should be seen as investment advice. Each person has a different financial situation, and what makes sense for Sam or me might not, and probably will not, make sense for you. We are not financial advisors, and you should do your own research before making any investment. Know that all investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, and always remember that if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably not true. Please enjoy the rest of the show. This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik digest the most interesting, informative and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hey there, listener, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico, and as usual, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Sam, and in this episode... We finished our fourth book on investing, and the book is called The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedin Amus. I think he's like Egyptian or something. Anyway, great book. If you know me, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I already said that this was a book that had a severe impact on my life. I will dive into that, but first, maybe some catching up. Sam, what's up in life with you? So, some things are up. I um, obviously enjoyed the book, and on my personal side, I've been... Uh, a bit stressed out by trying to do a million things at once, which I'm generally always doing, but it seems to be more overwhelming than usual. And then I've been talking to some friends around uh, ADD and ADHD and felt like it turns out I seem to have all the symptoms <laughs> and then was like, oh, maybe I'm living life <laughs> in, in a different way to the rest of the world. And I kind of just always accepted that I'm quite weird and just do my own thing. And it was just like part of my life. I just realized that mm-hmm. maybe it's not quite so normal and that maybe there are easier ways for your brain to work and concentrate on things because yeah I've been finding things a bit too overwhelming because I've somehow managed to do quite a lot of stuff with my life despite constantly being distracted <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's one of those funny things as in I found um I've made other jokes about like other parts of my health and turns out there's it was kind of true like I lost so much weight when I was traveling was like wow I look like I'm super anemic <laughs> later turned out I was very anemic and um I've made jokes about having ADHD because if, if you look at my LinkedIn profile like I just read like someone that is so full of ADHD because of, I've just mm. done like a million different things and I didn't seem to be able to stick at anything for more than three months and um yeah just sort of make jokes about it never thought about it seriously <laughs> and then actually started reading into it and was like all right Okay, all of these problems and stuff. That's kind of the problems that I have. Good. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And if you manage to achieve what you already achieved by, you know, having full-on ADHD, like, imagine what you could do with, you know, proper treatment and perhaps mm. medication. Yeah, I don't know how severe it is or not, because... Mm. Guess yeah, we'll see. All these things are a bit of a spectrum of stuff. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. I did try my friend's medication on Wednesday and oh my god life I was just like so easy <laughs> like really? this whole life thing yeah like my personality didn't feel any different I didn't feel like I was taking drugs like you do when you take caffeine or that kind of stuff but yeah. I just like, oh all this chaos of stuff I need to do just started doing it and I was calm like I also hung out I had some phone calls didn't really get distracted, just carried on doing things and focus and lots of stuff was done. It was really easy. I had a nice day. Cool. It got to the end of the day. I was like, wow, that was great. 
bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> why why can't I do this normally? Damn it. Yeah. It was just... All right. Yeah, everything was just unchallenging. It was That's like, cool. oh, of course I can do this. This is fine. Whereas normally it's a bit like, a, oh, God, if I start doing this, like I'm not doing this other thing, and I need to do this other thing, and oh, my God, uh, uh, oh, dear. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Mm. All right, let's see. I'm, uh, I'm curious to, to see, like, once you, like, get on something and try that for, for a bit longer, if, if that really helps you out. Yeah. And uh, what you, you'll be able to, <laughs> to do then. And how That's easy hype. it will be for you to stay focused during a podcast and to stay still and, and all that stuff. Yes, we will see. All right, <laughs> Let's, we'll see. Expectations. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Let's get back to the book. So basically, Bitcoin Standard, fantastic book. Very shortly, it analyzes the historical context to the rise of Bitcoin. It analyzes its economic properties and circumstances and its social, political, and economic implications. It's divided in a few parts. And I've, I've made my own little summary where there's like an introduction, where it basically talks about the history of money. And it doesn't touch upon Bitcoin yet. So it really starts like, okay, from the moments uh, humans started building societies, we started using money like a way to transact value. And then after he made like a summary until modern day, he goes into Bitcoin, how it works. And then he talks about the potential of Bitcoin for the future. And then finally, there's a, a bunch of common questions. So just we go through that ourselves as well. So general thoughts on the beginning for you, uh, Sam, like the history of money? I find it really interesting the whole initial things that were used for values of exchange, where those things became like faulty and just the evolution of more and more sound money and how actually some things have become less sound money as it stopped being backed by gold and became backed by governments and things and how that leads into it being easier to wage wars and other bad things. And the way he explains it certainly makes you feel like the trend is towards something that is more and more of a sound money that isn't controllable by anyone and um that bitcoin could be the answer mm -hmm. which is maybe let's talk about what sound money is right mm. so basically as an introduction although bitcoin is an invention of the digital age the problem that it tries to solve is as old as human society itself and it's basically how to transfer value across time and space if you've listened to this season in our first episode we discussed about the whole system and the mechanics of capitalism where you work and by working you try to add value to society and you get rewarded for that right and today we get rewarded for that in money in euros and dollars in pounds or whatever and that is our current system for store and transfer of value so whatever you want to store value a uh, store value for a certain amount of time you hold money and it's also very liquid which means that everyone in the world will accept your or everyone you know will accept the money that you have and so this is basically something that was needed throughout human history. It was like humans have needed a way to easily transact and to store things for a long time. And so he goes into like what was being used in the past. It started with like seashells and beads and even limestones. And I think this is one I'd like to touch upon. So he gives an example of like an island in the Pacific. You remember that? Where there's basically one village on that small island. And so the island doesn't have natural deposits of limestone. But an island that is like, I don't know, a few kilometers away overseas um, does. And so they have a bunch of circular limestones in the middle of the village. That is their amount of money. Every limestone had an owner. And so whenever you would want to buy, let's say you want to sell your hut because you want to buy, like get another hut or build a new hut. You would actually like say, okay, I'm paying this limestone for that hut. And the way of payment would be to tell the whole village 
okay, this limestone now belongs to the old owner of the hut and the hut then belongs to the new owner. And I found that fascinating as a way to actually, it's a very good analogy to how Bitcoin works. Because Bitcoin mm. also works similarly where you have like a public ledger. Everyone knows who owns what. And if you want to exchange a Bitcoin, you're basically telling the whole world that you're no longer the owner of Bitcoin. If I send Bitcoin to Sam, I just tell the whole network, okay, I'm sending my Bitcoin from my wallet to Sam's wallet. And so the whole world now knows, they all write down on their little ledger, okay, Sam is now the owner of that Bitcoin. Basically how it works. Fascinating. Anyway, mm. what do you think of that example? Yeah, I thought it was interesting to see them kind of having something permanent. And it, it is also like banking, I guess, these days where it is just digital bunches of numbers somewhere and you just say like, well, these numbers now belong to this person as opposed to this person. It's just like an environment where it's known, but I guess it's less public, which is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's the key difference, right? Bitcoin, yeah. There were like four actors. There's you, your bank, there's me and my bank. And so in this case, the, the interesting part about the description I, I gave about the island, I think it was like Guam or something. I don't, I don't remember fully. It is that everyone always knows who owns what. Mm. And it's just, yeah, it's really fascinating. And, and that's actually when I try to explain people how Bitcoin works, that's usually the um, analogy that I use. So basically, I tell, tell them the story about this island that was doing that. Anyway, so ancient times, they were using limestones and seashells to record, to transfer value. Later, that became metals and coins. Then afterwards, and we're talking about 100 years ago, we had the gold standard. So that was central banks owned gold and you basically received paper, which you could exchange for that gold. And then finally, there was government debt or fiat money where they just say, you have to trust us and this is just government money. Mm. And so basically in this description, he makes a very big, uh, well, he compares sound money to unsound money. And for him, throughout history, sound money was money that was limited in supply. And so throughout history, it has, has always been gold. So gold has always been very hard to increase the supply of. Because if you would today double the value of gold or double like the amount of money people would pay for gold, that would not necessarily mean that gold miners would suddenly like double the amount of gold that they would extract from the earth. It's very mm. hard to extract more gold from the earth. And so the rate at which the total gold supply increases is actually like relatively small. I think, I don't know how much percentage is. I think it's between like three and 5% or something. And it never fluctuates that much based upon the gold price at that time. Yeah. And so it's always been the best one. Interesting story from yesterday about uh, gold. There was like one of the richest person that ever lived whose wealth is basically incalculable was um, one of the kings of Mali who literally everything he owned was like made of gold and stuff. And he took 60,000 people to Egypt and gave out so much gold in the process that he completely crashed like the Egyptian economy where they also relied really? on gold a lot for things this was in like the 12th century or something for 10 years like they kind of ruined everything which uh, I found kind of interesting and I yeah. could find the actual link to that story for you if you wanted at some point but yeah, yeah. reading through so, like the wealthiest people ever was, was an interesting thing in general yeah and so um Anyway, <laughs> yeah, the author he talks about sound money and unsound money, and and so throughout history, sound money was always gold, and so I found this quite hard to believe. But he like goes through history and talks about like all the worst things that happened, and basically like everything bad that happened in history was due to unsound money, and everything mm. good that happened, like all the inventions, all the beautiful arts, that was all done because of sound money. Yeah. He makes some good cases, but sometimes it's yeah, yeah. not always 100% accurate. Yeah, exactly. But one 
one story I quite liked was the like in Africa they used to use like glass beads as a yeah. sound money, and there was just like a limited ability to make glass and stuff, so it worked quite well. And then when the Europeans got there, they realized that they really valued this glass, and they just started like mass producing it in Europe, and they were just mm-hmm. able to buy everything and completely sort of take over land and then crash the prices of things and ruin their economy and then own everything because yeah. they're the, the owners of the entire value chain of yeah. the unit yeah. of exchange which um was kind of interesting and why you shouldn't uh-huh. have something that like can be easily replicable by others he then goes into the whole history of wars and stuff and how it does kind of make sense when you have the gold standard things you can't just make more money and so you can't easily afford to go and wage war without taxing all of your citizens who don't yeah. really want to be taxed heavily and so won't let you do it but they will happily pay taxes if you're being attacked by someone to defend the country so mm. to be a defensive nation was never really a problem if you can sort of argue why it was but to sort of really go and do mass terrible waging of war and killing of other people was a lot harder without some kind of dictatorship scheme or a different form of unsound money Whereas when we got to the point where um, it started being government-backed money, people were able to then go and do some massive wars because they just printed the money because they wanted to just enforce the taxation themselves rather than asking people for it. And that led mm-hmm. to like some of the biggest wars of history, uh, according to him, which makes sense. Perhaps other things going on as well, but it certainly like allows for that sort of stuff to happen. And then if you look at like how most of the dictators and things, they then unlink the sound money, even if it was back to sort of different rules of enforcement where they're able to just do what they want with money and um it is interesting mm. and yeah yeah i really like that part so i, I wrote it mm. down to, to mention uh because it, it's true that if you have sound money or unsound money sound money means like the government cannot easily make more yeah and unsound money means that they can and so unsound money actually makes things less democratic because if you're a government and you need money to do things let's say you want to build a bridge or whatever mm. um if there's only sound money, the only way you can do that is by taxing the people and asking them basically for money so you can build that bridge. And so if the people agree that that bridge is needed, they'll give you the money willingly. If, however, you have sound money and you want to wage war, you want to attack because you're a king and you want to have a large territory because that will stroke your ego and you feel good about yourself, then if you have to tax your subjects and they disagree, that's democratic. And then they can say, screw you, I'm not, I'm not going to give you money for this. Mm. But I mean, I found that a very, very good point. But in general, I mean, it's clear, right? If you want to store your wealth in something that is easily printed or easily created or easily oversupplied, it's not going to be good for you. And so he, throughout history, he gives a lot of examples of, you know, where in one society, different people used different kinds of value stores. And throughout history, the ones that used gold or the most sound of the different options would always be better off, right? Mm. If one country was using both gold and silver to trade, the people that used or held gold were always better off than the people that actually transacted in silver and or any other type of currency. Yeah, and so basically like he, he makes a case at the end of the chapter, like if you use sound money, your country and your society is going to be more future-oriented. It's going to be easier to accumulate capital. It's going to be, you're more incentivized to accumulate capital. Trade's going to go better. There's going to be peace. There's going to be more culture and more art. So basically sound money leads to a better world, world and unsound money leads to hell, basically. <laughs> That's the summary of the, of the first part of the book. Yeah, and it's a good read. Whether you're yeah. like a historian, economic, or 
whatever. It's yeah, just exactly. Like, I think it's nice. Absolutely. If you're interested into economics, I yeah. think it also like explains quite a, a few concepts pretty well. Maybe we should shortly touch upon like the different views on monetary policy. Are you familiar yeah. with those? I am. I'm going to say no. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but so very broadly speaking, there's like two different camps in economics today, which is on one side you have the Keynesians or the modern modern monetary theorists. And so they say that inflation is needed and necessary because if there's no inflation, if your money is not losing value, people are actually going to postpone spending, which is going to slow down the economy. So if you spend less, companies earn less and then people make less money, they spend even less. And so that way they believe that people will come, like the economy will come to a standstill or to a halt or, or slow down. So that's one camp. That's the Keynesians or the modern monetary theorists. And so the modern monetary theorists are like almost very, they're very extreme. And so they can say that inflation is allowed to go up to the, the level of GDP growth. So let's say that if your GDP grows by 5% per year, they say that you can inflate the currency by 5% per year. That's how they look at it. The Keynesians try to keep inflation around 2%. And then finally, there's the Austrian economists. And so they're the like the other side of the spectrum. And so they say, like, you should always go for the hardest kind of money. And so the hardest kind of money is the ones that has the lowest amount of inflation, even potentially deflation. And they're in favor of that. Right now, in power, in central banks, you have the Keynesians that are in power. So they, they make these decisions and they're the ones saying, okay, we need to aim for 2 to 3% inflation per year because that's good to have like a thriving and a growing economy. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to learn about that, it's described in this book. But I, yeah, I'm not sure if like everything I said was exactly there in the book because yeah, I've been learning about this on the mm. side as well. Yeah, so. I feel like I've read that in various different places. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. The big do. discussion. All right, let's move into Bitcoin. Mm. Sam, cool. who's the inventor of Bitcoin? Satoshi Nakamoto. Yes. Oh, I think I'm saying that yeah. wrong. But but no, no, no one knows absolutely. basically. That's just an exactly. alias. Yes. Some some dude or or lady dude. who a group of dudes was forward thinking. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Probably. Anyway. Let's be honest. So basically Bitcoin got invented, I think, in two thousand in the end of two thousand eight and was started on like a very fishy mailing list of a bunch of cryptographers. So people that were interested in cryptography, they were the first ones to start experimenting with Bitcoin. And so the fundamental of Bitcoin is, is that it's a decentralized distributed piece of software that converts electricity and processing power into indisputably accurate records. And with that, it allows its users to utilize the internet to perform the traditional functions of money without having to rely on or trust any authorities or infrastructure in the physical world. Mm. So basically, you can think of Bitcoin as digital cash. The thing is, one of the differences between current payments and cash payments. So if I give Sam a bill of $100, he has that bill of $100 and I cannot like claim it back in any way. If I make a bank transfer to Sam or I make a credit card payment to Sam, there's a whole different story. And so the companies like Visa and MasterCard, like if you make a Visa payment and a week after you tell them, look, no, I don't want this to go through because it's a scam. It doesn't go through, which means that Visa charges about 2% or 1% to 2% on every transaction that happens. And 1% to 2% is, is like a huge amount. And so the whole payment world today, I mean, Visa has their, like the fact that you can recall your payments, like has its use, right? But for a lot of things, the extra cost is not worth it. Like if you pay, I think in the US, if you go to a restaurant 
and you pay with your credit cards, you just had food, you were willing to pay that money, like it should be the same as cash. Like there shouldn't be any reason why you should be able to recall it afterwards. And so there shouldn't be any reason why the restaurant who is receiving your money is paying one to 2% on that transaction. Mm. So that's one of the limits of the current digital payment system. The fact that it's all like very slow, very inefficient. Yeah, and Bitcoin solves that. Nice. Do you agree? Yeah, then kind of you don't have inflation affecting your currency. That's the second story. That is mm. the fact that it's it has an automated and perfectly predictable monetary policy. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so there's only 21 million, well, Bitcoins in the world ever, and they're being mined in once they're done, they're done. You can't ever make more of them. It's not like you could actually discover more gold kind of thing, even, although it's very unlikely. So it's always going to be limited, like how much there is. So it's never going to be printed and suffer from inflation. It's not controlled by anyone, so no one can say how much there is. It goes into the details of why it's going to be very hard to really ever hack it. So exchanges have been hacked and people have lost money on their wallets and things, but actually... The ledger as such has never really been affected by anyone, so it's safer than holding your money in a bank even, hypothetically speaking. And so you can just trust that what you have is is like an investment in time and because it's not going down in value, it's actually it incentivizes you to actually store it and hold it as opposed to get rid of it with the Keynesian economics of like, oh, my money's going down in value, I need to spend it more to like make more. The whole hodling thing is a, a very wise strategy which mm-hmm. uh, you've always been a proponent, what's the word? Proponent. An advocate yeah. of. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah, and maybe let, let's get a big bit into how Bitcoin actually works. So the Bitcoin network is a blockchain and blockchain stands for a chain of blocks. And so each block contains all the transaction of like during a 10 minute window that have mm. happened. Well, it's not exactly that, it's it's less but anyway, so what happens is, let's say I have a Bitcoin wallet and a wallet means I have private keys that control the Bitcoin that are stored on an address. And if I want to send Sam Bitcoin, I publicly announce that I want to send a number of Bitcoin from my address to his address. And so everyone who wants to make a Bitcoin transaction publishes their transactions onto the network. So it's like posting it onto Facebook. It's a bit like that where there's like one big list with all of the transactions that have been posted during, like that have been posted. And so what miners do is miners, they take the transactions and they put those transactions into a block. So you always hear about, you know, Bitcoin energy usage. The miners expend energy to attach and I'm going to explain it simply here, to attach the block onto the blockchain. So the chain of blocks that was already there. And so every 10 minutes, one miner attaches a new block to the blockchain. And the reward they get for that currently sits around exactly 6.25 Bitcoin. So every 10 minutes right now, a miner that attaches the transactions to the blockchain receives 6.25 new bitcoins every four years that reward gets halved and so this year there was a bitcoin halving so the bitcoin reward per block went from 12.5 to 6.25 and in three years the bitcoin reward will go down from 6.25 to 3.175 or 1.625 i don't know makes sense yes yeah yeah yeah. definitely and so yeah it's going to get lower and lower, like the amount of Bitcoin you get rewarded. But exactly, exactly. The value of Bitcoin is probably going to be going up, so it's still going to kind of be fair to be mining it. And yeah, um, not only that, there's a fee system as well. 
So basically, if I send a transaction onto the BigTone network, you always attach a little fee. Well, you don't have to, but you're able to attach a little fee to it. What miners do is they take the transactions that have the largest fees and they attach them to the network. When they add that block to the blockchain, they get all of the fees of the people that paid plus the amount of Bitcoin. The more people are sending transactions to the Bitcoin network, the higher the fees will be because you want yours to be. And there's only a fixed amount of transactions that can go on each block. I don't know the exact number. I think it's a few thousand. And so if you want to be in the inside that few thousand, you're going to have to add like a high fee. So yeah, and, and that's, bit, that's also how miners actually make money. And that's why Bitcoin transactions are not free right now. Mm. Because if you don't attach a fee, your transaction will never go through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can add security to your transaction by increasing your fees and making it happen over more blocks in terms of the valid the verification of it so you can send bitcoin without having any blocks it goes into in that way like it's actually hackable but if you have more it's basically like infinitely unhackable if you have like three blocks worth of verifications or something like that yeah i think explained perfectly can i go into that yes please (laughs) it's about like trusting that a transaction went through what you described Mm. right so One of the risks in payments is the double spend problem. Imagine that there's a money that you can have on email. Like if I send Sam an email with money with the current email technology, like there's nothing stopping me from also sending an email to someone else. And so basically the Bitcoin network has a solution for that. And that is the whole block system. And so if I send a transaction to Sam, he is able to wait, for example, three blocks to be confirmed. So if my transaction happens within a block and there's three extra blocks built on top of that, then he can be fairly certain that I did not double spend. However, if I publish my transaction to the network, Sam would be able to see that I published it and he has the option to believe that transaction went through at that moment. But if I decide to make another transaction with the same Bitcoin with a higher amount of fees, I can actually have that attached to the blockchain before the one I sent to Sam. And in the end, that results in Sam not receiving any Bitcoin. And so if I buy, let's say, a, a beer of Sam and I send him a Bitcoin, but I manage to double spend that same Bitcoin and buy something from someone else, Sam actually gave me a beer, but he never received any Bitcoin for it. If that makes sense. Mm. And so that is why if you're receiving Bitcoin, it's always safe to wait for a few block transactions, like a few network transactions or network confirmations. And usually if you have three network confirmations, there's like almost no way for the transaction to not be valid in the end. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing in there is like, as you mentioned, there's only a limited amount of transactions that can go on per block. And yet Mm -hmm. people are trading it all the time. And you're like, well, how are the, all these actions happening? And so on exchanges, what they do is they don't actually pay the fees to put it onto the ledger they just internally go oh cool this person's got this much this person's got that much and they sort of just change it within it and Mm -hmm. um they kind of like a banking system have their own internal ledger of things which is Mm -hmm. why you can get hacked on exchanges and you need to Mm -hmm. trust the exchange more and based on their own security but it means that there can be a lot more liquidity in bitcoin and it transacting between different amounts of people and they also have liquidity between each other. So like, like you worked for a company that did market making that helped keep the stabilization of prices between exchanges and things like that, which um, mm-hmm. is why you maybe know a little bit more about cryptocurrency than I do. I'd, <laughs> I'd like to think. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly an interesting factor into it. And 
I'm not sure how much that happens in real exchanges as well in terms of, well, real exchanges in like... You mean hacks? I meant like uh, normal stocks and shares exchanges and stuff. Ah, I think the key difference is there that it's very difficult to steal a share because yeah. shares are attached to your name, right? So it's always like reversible. Let's say that I hack your account and send your share to me. If you're like, where did my share go of Apple, let's say, you can always track that transaction and you can see that it's now on my name, right? Mm. And then you can say like, yeah, screw that. I don't want that transaction to go through. Like he hacked my account and that can always be reversed. And I mean, it has a, like, there's a strength behind the fact that everything is clear and everything can be reversed, right? If someone hacks my bank account and makes like a huge payment to themselves, I mean, it's not that there's so much money on there. So, but anyway, if they do that, like there's a way for me to reverse that payment, there's no way to reverse that payment in Bitcoin. And so there's like benefits and drawbacks there, right? The fact that it can be reversed means that like I can sleep safely. Like my money is in a bank account. I can sleep safely. I know that even if someone fakes my identity and manages to steal or to make a transaction, like there's a very good chance that I'll be able to reverse that transaction and get my money back. That is not the case with Bitcoin. The fact that you can sleep safely because, you know, any fake or bad transaction can always be reversed you pay for that in losing value of the money that you have, basically. So every every day, the money that you have in the bank loses a bit of value. And so if you store it in Bitcoin on a safe way, it never really loses it, its value, theoretically, depending obviously on how much people are willing to pay for it. But if someone hacks you and takes your Bitcoin, you can't do anything against it. It cannot be reversed. Mm. Okay, let's maybe move on to like Bitcoin as an investment. Like how, how do you, Sam, look at Bitcoin from an investment point of view? Because that's what we're talking about in this season. Yeah. So he goes into like other cryptocurrencies and what they might be useful compared to Bitcoin and, and how Bitcoin is becoming, well, like the book says, the Bitcoin standard, it's kind of replacing the gold standard. So gold isn't necessarily a common unit of exchange as such. It's like a backing and that kind of people want to just hold it and that it makes sense to just invest and have Bitcoin and maybe other currencies have other uses for different sort of forms of transactions as such but you kind of just want to own bitcoin is i guess where it's going with that and certainly like how i'm kind of feeling because the price is still like a lot more volatile than where it'll go in the future one should hope from reading the book of if it is just becoming like the sound money of mm. of the future of the world mm. but it is going to be trending upwards endlessly basically because there's only a limited amount of it and there's more and more people want it and trust it it just becomes more valuable mm -hmm. so it is something that you kind of should just be having and so and i know you've been having like just a regular buy order and holding it for a while and i've kind of been adopting the same policy but i have also been kind of trading it over the start of this year but i got too stressed by doing too many things and didn't really enjoy it that much but um Yes. Uh, Could you describe it, what trading is? So there's different forms of trading. So you can do like day trading, like within the, oh, I think like right now it's just going to go up a little bit and you sort of buy it and sell it within like a space of a few minutes or an hour. Then you have kind of like swing trading where you're like, okay, so the market's generally bullish for this month. I'm going to buy some and I'm going to sell it because I think it's going to get to like 50K. Then I think it's going to go down again to 30K. And so you sort of do like midterm trading. Or you might try and do like proper timing of the market of like, okay, I think it's going to be the lowest at sort of 
5k and i think it will hit like 60k before it sort of stops and you sort of sell everything when you think it's too high and you wait for like six months because you think it's going to go down again but basically trading is attempting to buy it low and and sell it high and Mm. repeatedly keep on doing that and make more money than you would by just holding it (laughs) so trying to outperform the market basically speaking yeah yeah so i'm personally not a big fan of trading one reason is that it has tax implications so if mm. you if you trade like in Belgium for example where I live if you just buy and hold for long term then it's not seen like it's not taxed it's like oh, wow. you know it's it's just like owning a piece of property that you just managed to sell for a higher price or a stock for example that appreciates in value um so it's not taxed and so the moment you start day trading and you start making money that way it is taxed and so for me day trading is a zero sum game if you mm. win in game in day trading or in trading in general, someone else loses, right? And so fundamentally, I'm against trading. I don't want to spend my mental, like any mental effort on it. And so my strategy has always been, so, I mean, I was working in the crypto space for a bit because I found it super exciting. And this was in the 2017, you know, crypto boom. And I read this book and I realized like this, I considered Bitcoin to be an asymmetric trade. It had asymmetric upsides. Like for me, in my head, Back then already, I believe that Bitcoin had like a 90% chance of becoming like the world's store of value. And if that was the case, Bitcoin would be worth at least 1 million euros in purchasing power or dollars or, or pounds or whatever per Bitcoin. Mm. There was another risk. And I, that risk for me was, let's say 10%, where Bitcoin would, there like some flaw would be discovered and it would go down to zero. And so basically I had a 10% chance of losing my money and I had a 90% chance of like 200xing my money, which was like a huge asymmetric trade, um, which is why during that time, like every single paycheck I had, I would take probably half of it and buy Bitcoin with it. And also with a bit, a bit of Ether, which is uh, another cryptocurrency we can go into uh, perhaps in another episode. And I've been like, I haven't sold any Bitcoin yet. Actually, yeah, I did buy, I did sell one Bitcoin recently because I needed, <laughs> I quickly needed some, uh, I think it was Cardano, Cardano to do something else with. Um, oh, yeah, but it's still crypto though. Yeah, it's still crypto. So I, I never so like, so, sold for fiat. Ada, which um, was probably a good shout anyway, because it's... Uh gone up by like four whereas bitcoins yeah doubled in, yeah, the, exactly. in the past few months so who knows where it'll be in a few years time but it seems to be um a solid bet really ada which is yeah. another set we'll of see. things to go into of why and um yes yeah, exactly but uh good i <laughs> wish i had been more patient and um followed your lines of thinking i've managed to do okay out of crypto, but pretty great, relatively speaking. But um, I've also could have done way better by um, not bothering to even by try and just yeah, just buying and holding in terms of the amount of money that I've put into it and things and where it's gone to. But you know, yeah. you learn. It's funny how like ironic you can like mess things up by like putting more effort into stuff. If someone comes to you and they say like, "Okay, Sam, you're you're like a crypto dude, and yeah. I want to get into cryptocurrencies." Let's say my total investable assets are 10K pounds. Yeah. And they don't have any investments. Mm-hmm. But maybe let's say that they're paying off their house or something like that. They, they already got that covered, sure. right? So but they're paying off their assuming house. Assuming they have a, a regular wage as well, though, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they have a regular wage uh, and they have 10K right now that they can invest. What do you tell them? I would, 
I would more like ask them questions being like, well, how much do you want to be going on holiday with this money at all? As in what kind of lifestyle do you want to be living, etc.? And how much do you want to like not see for a while? And also what are your life goals in terms of money and things? But basically I would, because you don't really know about like, the price, I, I would go for more like set a regular buy order, work out like, are you comfortable with five grand? And then maybe over the year, buy like 500 pounds each month or something but basically just hold it and don't really try and sell it or think about it that much more just think of it as a permanent i have this amount of cryptocurrency now and leave it and i would also probably split it between like ethereum ada and bitcoin rather than Mm. just bitcoin Mm -hmm. and uh, again also there's like the you can put it into staking pools where you earn interest so you can just like have an amount of Bitcoin and just permanently earning more Bitcoin on it, which is great, but also you then have a bit more risks of like it's on an exchange or it's with someone's staking pool who you don't necessarily fully trust compared to having it in your own private wallet, which is safer. So there's still like an amount of risks with all these things or like exchanges also getting shut down and things like Binance has gone through a bunch of issues. Other ones, I mean, you're using BlockFi, which I've been using, but then like they're having a bunch of issues around stuff and seems to still be okay for now but um the interest rates are changing and uh, people can't open new accounts and things so you still need to like keep a bit of attention on on it if you have it in a place that isn't just a cold wallet so there's some things to think about but basically i would i would not (laughs) in a pushy manner try and get them to invest in bitcoin or cryptocurrency Mm. of some form Mm. but i don't know what you would say would you just say like put it all in bitcoin and forget it (laughs) Well, it depends. I think maybe first let's quickly touch upon like different ways to store any cryptocurrencies yeah. that you decide to invest in or buy. Generally speaking, for me, three ways to do it. There's exchanges, there is hot wallets, and there's cold wallets. So an exchange is the easiest way. And for example, my girlfriend, I convinced her to buy some crypto a few years back and she bought it in Coinbase. So basically she made a Coinbase account, she sent her money there, and then she bought some crypto with it. It's been doing great. And she keeps it there. And Coinbase is very safe. There's like a very, very, very small chance that Coinbase ever gets hacked and that she loses whatever she has because they have like the world's best security. I mean, the big exchanges have a very good security. So wouldn't be too worried about that. The second is a hot wallet. So a lot of people, experts say that not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And so they say, if you don't own the keys to the wallet that owns the Bitcoin, then you might get in trouble. Um, and so they say you should make your own wallets and keep and store all of your crypto assets on there. And so there's a few suggestions there, like a few solutions. And one that I like is called MetaMask. So MetaMask is a Chrome extension. And so you just download it and you generate a new address. They give you a bunch of words to write down, which you should absolutely do. And then you can start sending the crypto that you just bought on an exchange there. And at that moment, you own your own private keys. And that is called a hot wallet. And so the difference between a hot wallet and a cold wallet is that a hot wallet is it's connected to the internet. Like it's on the Chrome browser. And so worst case, if you like get hacked in some weird way, you could lose all your, your stuff that you have in that wallet. Finally, uh, there are cold wallets and cold wallets are just devices, USB sticks or other specific devices where you store your private keys. Ledger is a good one. Trezor is another one. There's just more. So these generate the keys and the keys stay on that specific device and they never go off that device. So they're programmed in that way that they're like super safe. And so that is the way that I store my crypto or most of my crypto is just in on a USB stick in a safe 
And that's the way I, I, I use it. And the cool thing is you can always send your Bitcoin to your uh, ledger without having to like take it out of, of storage. So I just have my address that I know from my ledger and I just send all the Bitcoins that I buy or Ethereum that I buy and I just send it to that address. Very easy, very convenient. So those are the three ways to, to store uh, your Bitcoins. And then there's also a fourth way, which is means that you can just like literally write down your private key and keep it on the paper storage, it's called. But that is also, that's not very user-friendly. And so I would just recommend buying like a cheap device, like a Trezor or a Ledger and just saving your stuff there. Or if you don't invest that much, if it's just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand euros or dollars worth, you can keep it on the exchange as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, if someone comes to me and asks ask me, like, I want to I wanna get into crypto, how do I do this? I think it depends. So I've had some young people come to me and they expect, like, they want to make 100x returns, right? They want to come to me and they want to get rich. And so I tell them, like, okay, if you want to, let's say you have a thousand euros and you want to get rich with that, like, you cannot put it in Bitcoin anymore. It's too late. Like, Bitcoin's too expensive to still make, like, a shit ton of money by investing a thousand uh, euros. And so I tell them, like, if you want to have 100x returns, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to look at small cap projects, like starting projects that have like very ambitious goals, a good team, a strong team, and buy those tokens. And that for that, I would like, you go to CoinMarketCap or CoinGecko or whatever, and you start learning, understanding. And when you find something you believe in, you make like a relatively large bet. So that's how I approach it. But what I would tell most people that don't want to spend all that time there, um, I tell them a bit similar to what you said, Sam, like I would allocate a part of my liquid net worth um, let's say they say, okay, I have 100K in investable assets. I would say, depending on their age, like the older they are, the less risky they should go. The younger they are, the more risky they can go. Mm-hmm. And usually what I say is I would I would take like like half and go for like a tracker, um, like a stock tracker. I would mm-hmm. t- say 30%, I would go and divide that, uh, let's say 70, 30 over Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then 20% I would keep in cash for whatever, like that could happen. That's basically how I look at it. And then, I mean, obviously, depending on, on their technical capabilities, like understanding of the crypto market itself or willingness to learn, they could also start, you know, taking small parts and making smaller bets on, on projects that have like a lot of long-term potential. Yeah, definitely. And if they are able to allocate sort of 10% of their wage or something. Uh, yeah, month, yeah, sorry. That's a very that's good point. That's actually best. Of... Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> best. Because I always said, like, if I invest in crypto, I dollar cost average, which mm. means that every month or every amount of time you just buy for like a set amount of money. So let's say uh, $500 or pounds per month. I think that's a good target. If you're young and if you're working right now, I think living cheaply and maximizing the amount of money from your monthly paycheck that you can invest is one of the absolute wisest things you can do. Yeah, 100%. And I also believe that there's huge potential in the crypto world. I still believe, like for me, my Bitcoin price tag in year 2030 is at least 1 million in today's purchasing power. Mm. So you'll be able to buy a house with one Bitcoin. That's my my goal or how I look at it. And so I'm saying like, if you're willing to not travel and not live luxuriously and drive like a smaller car and invest the money that you save by living cheaper, I think you can make some some very good uh invest or at least you'll be able to live way more comfortably when you're like 40 or 50 or 60 yeah big time all right any more things about the book yeah yeah it sort of certainly is interesting around um then you can be earning so much more money just by having some investments compared to doing actual job or something uh yes (laughs) even you um are investing wisely which is really interesting Uh, but you obviously have some kind of capital Starting, first to be investing yeah yeah and exactly 
I, I mean, I know you're very heavy into crypto, but I would say it is good to kind of have a bit of balance. So obviously, you mentioned stocks and things, but also, I mean, I've been investing in startups and stuff, and that's actually been quite interesting, like how well that's performed compared to like my normal jobs and stuff over the last yeah, few yeah. years and things. And you're like, yeah, but, <laughs> but again, it's highly risky and you, you have much less liquidity as well. You can't just randomly cash out with those things. But um, it yeah, is. Totally a good long-term strategy and, and well like the Naval Ravikant book which would be a good one to go do in the series because he talks a lot about investing and happiness and success and things and mm. his kind of general ethos is how to get to the point where you have enough money to be comfortable first and but sacrifice things and basically just be investing in things and he kind of has the strategy of like just being able to invest in enough startups and have some good deal flow and you'll just be like stupidly rich in 10 years time and mm. the same with mm-hmm. yeah. Having some crypto and other things. Let's do that book next. Next. Okay. Yeah. Did you want to do NFTs next, just as a general, like, yeah, look into it. Yeah. To get back to your point. So basically, um, currently we're in the September to 2021 when we record this, and there's like this NFT hype, and it's so true. Like the reason I say to so many people that they should think about investing is that like the life-changing money is never made on an hourly basis, mm. and that's why I say like if you want to be wealthy. You can never do that by exchanging your time for money. You have to invest. And so basically, to give you an example, this week, I made a few trades and only one, like they all have done pretty well, but one trade made me more money than I could ever earn in like two years time. Mm. One trade. And yeah, it's insane. And so I have the advantage of being knowledgeable in the space, having spent a lot of time in the the crypto space. So I have that, that, that advantage, but I believe that everyone should be thinking about investing and making you know capital work because we're we still live in a capitalist society and as unfair as that might seem to some people i think it's the most efficient way to have like a thriving society and if you want to be well off which everyone should want to be you should make sure that you're on the capitalist's side and you make your capital you know generate returns for you and yeah i think cryptocurrencies is becoming a very important part of this. I believe it will be the store of value, the best store of value over the next decades. And so I would certainly, like I would recommend everyone to consider uh, an investment, at least a part allocation of their assets to Bitcoin. And I would say, even if you're very risk averse, I would go for at least, uh, or aim for 5%. If you're less risk averse, you can go higher. I think the saying, we're still early, is is kind of relevant in that... um, (laughs) I said people kind of feel like it's too late to invest now and they go, Oh, it's we should just let value and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's already fifty well, K. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And By the way, know, if you believe um, in the long term it's gonna be a million, then it's still cool. You've got a twenty yeah, X exactly. increase. And yeah, exactly. like who doesn't want to have twenty X their money in the next ten years, as opposed to Yeah, that's anyone would take that that's yeah, yeah. yeah anyway. Whereas if it's in the bank and you've got like one percent interest two percent interest and like the price of inflation is going up by like three or four percent you're like okay so you're gonna have less money if you leave it at the bank <laughs> and yeah. so like savings just seem a bit silly exactly anyway so to, to get back on, on my trades i think nfts are also very interesting and interesting technology that came from the invention of bitcoin and so that's what we're going to be discussing next week but they're not <laughs> because it's so new there are not a lot of nft books out there so we're probably going to be looking for some articles i will be sharing yeah. those with you Thing. And then uh, basically explanation of on that. how it works, some of the history of the space, so yeah. some interesting things that people cool. have done, and we'll also take some questions. I think I'll message my mates around what their biggest questions are. Kiss. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. All Worth right. Well. Then before that, let's finish because we're already. Uh, it's been a long episode already. Let's uh, do some ratings. Yeah, I would say 
in terms of the quality of the writing and like the message, I guess 8.5. I think it's super important, really changes the way you think and stuff. Could be slightly better. Maybe I'm being picky, I don't know why. But I, I feel like everyone should read it, so it's mm. good. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, for me, it was a, like a financial life-changing book, I guess. It also yeah. changed the way I'd look at economics. I learned a lot. Like I studied economics, and this book taught me uh, more than a lot of courses did You know, in, the, in less mm. time. It's definitely resulted in crazy, yeah, it's a big part of your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm now like full-on into the, the crypto NFT gaming space. Uh, love it and it wouldn't have happened if I wasn't so convinced by the technology so yeah for me I, I give it a nine I think it's a, it's a great book I mean it's it's not perfect I think there's stuff that could be better but I think it stays like a must read I think if you if you're interested in investing and you want to you know build long-term wealth I think this book is, is really really important all right so um, that rounds up the episode anything you want to leave our listeners with Sam I yeah I just had some other thoughts of and questions and things which don't know if you want to like go into those i think the biggest one is people talk about like quantum computing and is that just going to completely ruin any point of bitcoin and is it going to go to zero because of that and i don't think you need to have a long debate on that but do you think uh it's going to be sound or do we have a problem yeah i'm so but yeah the problem is it's going to be a very like long discussion but the thing for me the most important learning is that one of the things i realize is that bitcoin is a living thing so mm-hmm. bitcoin is not fixed Bitcoin changes and it becomes better. And so there's a very healthy community of developers working on making Bitcoin better and they hold Bitcoin themselves. And so they're extremely incentivized in making Bitcoin better. And so if quantum computing makes large advancements, the security to counter quantum computing will always advance faster than the encryptions that quantum computing can break. And so Mm. let's say that big advancements get made into quantum computing and it looks like at some point, it might be able to break the algorithms that secure the Bitcoin network. At that point, the development community around Bitcoin will make sure that Bitcoin becomes quantum-proof because there are already solutions to make something quantum-proof. And so that's why I'm not concerned about that. And that's in general, that's actually my answer to most of the concerns of people around Bitcoin, where they're like, oh, there's going to be like a new technology that's going to be so much better than Bitcoin. And so basically... My response is, if there is a solution that potentially is good for Bitcoin and that does not make it less decentralized, less scalable or less safe, then there's no reason why the Bitcoin community would not implement it to make the Bitcoin network better. And so, yeah, that's my answer to these types of uh, concerns. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. I like it. All right. Are you uh, feeling better about your, your Bitcoins now? Yeah. (laughs) Had a cover. Very good. All right, listener, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a nice rating uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also come hang out with Sam and myself in Reason.fm. It's a great app. You can tag us. You can listen. uh, You can give us comments. You can ask questions. And then uh, we'll uh, speak to you in the next episode about NFTs. It's going to be fun. It will. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and share with your friends. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us a comment, feel free to join us on Reason. Reason is Sam's startup that is building a social podcasting app. It is a place where Sam and I listen to podcasts and share ideas and insights. It'd be great if you would hang out with us there. Thanks again and speak to you in the next episode. Cheers.